0: The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel. I'm the host for this podcast. My husband, Steve Siegel, is the producer for this podcast. Today's episode is episode number 254. We are almost to our the end of our fifth year of podcasting on a weekly basis, and we sincerely hope that we have been able to offer you some hope about this horrific pandemic we call drug and alcohol addiction and also to make sure that we've let you know that there is help available no matter who you are whether you're an addict whether you're a loved one of an addict whether you just want to know what's going on we hope that we have done that for you just a reminder to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and also please subscribe to our youtube channel Also, if you'd like to get our weekly reminders about the podcast and other important things that come up in the recordings or I mean in the ongoing workings of this podcast, then go to our website and sign up for our email list. We don't sell our list. We're not going to spam you. Um, Typically, I don't send out more than one email a week and sometimes I forget. Then you might get two a week, but there you go. So if you've been listening recently, you know that we have been talking a lot about Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers. And the reason for that is um, we had a gentleman on and he mentioned that there was a mini-series coming up on Hulu, which um, is uh, called Dope Sick. And I don't know if you can still watch it on Hulu or not. I, I haven't looked recently. You could check it out. But it's based on a book by the same name, Dope Sick, by Beth Macy. And um it basically follows a couple of um US attorneys who kind of started looking at the crimes that were going on and the fact that the crimes were involving um, opioids and specifically OxyContin, and then they started delving into Purdue Pharma and marketing. And yeah, anyway, that's what the series is about. It is a docudrama, I guess you say, because it's got actors in it. And But one of the key players in this whole scenario is the U.S. Attorney Rick Mountcastle, and we're going to be talking to him today. Rick served as a federal prosecutor for more than 32 years, first at the Department of Justice and later at the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Western District of Virginia. As a senior trial attorney in DOJ's criminal tax enforcement section, he prosecuted criminal, criminal tax cases throughout the U.S. In 1993, Rick was awarded DOJ's highest honor, the Attorney General's Award for the trial of litigation for his work as the lead prosecutor in the trialing conviction of a Russian organized crime leader and his associates for a multimillion dollar motor fuel excise tax scheme. While at the U.S. Attorney's Office from 1995 to 2018, Rick served in numerous roles, including as a criminal division assistant U.S. attorney, a civil division assistant U.S. attorney, the chief of the civil division, the first assistant U.S. attorney, the principal deputy U.S. attorney, and the interim U.S. attorney. He was the lead prosecutor on several high-profile health care fraud cases, including the first Purdue Pharma prosecution, the criminal and civil false claims prosecution of Abbott Labs for the fraudulent marketing of the anti-epileptic Depakote, and the Universal Health Services Inc. False Claims Act litigation. Rick previously served four years as an active duty Army JAG officer and 24 years as a National Guard and Army Reserve JAG officer. So I'm super excited to talk to Rick Mountcastle and get more of the inside skinny on what it was like going after Purdue and the Sacklers. So let's talk to Rick Mountcastle. Rick Mountcastle, thank you so much for being willing to talk to us today on the podcast. I am super excited to talk to you.
1: Joni, thank you for inviting me and uh, it's an honor to be on this podcast talking to uh, an audience of folks who I regard as heroes, folks that are battling uh, addiction, and f- especially family members who are working with their loved ones to get through an addiction. It's its an honor for me to be here.
0: Thank you so much.
1: So I wanted to just, uh, I need to make this legal statement. Um, so this is the legal fine print to my appearance on the podcast. i um, my statements and comments during this podcast are my personal views and opinions, and are in no way related to my position with the virginia attorney general's office
0: it, Rick, tell us a little bit about your background just you know where you grew up even did you I'm, i i you, i know you're not you were never a drug addict but but did you ever encounter anything just about drug addiction just in your in your years growing up
1: um, well, i grew up, of course i'm um, I'm, I'm kind of of the, of an older generation. So I grew up, um, you know, in, in the, as a baby boomer, um, in a military environment. Um, uh, my dad was in the air force and, uh, then later he worked for the department of the army. So as I was growing up, we traveled all over the place, moved very frequently. Uh, my five years before of, of, of um, uh, Middle school and high school before I went to college were spent in Europe, uh, in uh, Italy and Germany on basically military bases at uh, uh, the the, in the military, the Department of Defense uh, school system. So, um, you know, as I recall back then, you know, it was the 60s and the 70s and, um, you know, marijuana and LSD and all that started coming into vogue, but alcoholism was really a very uh, prevalent issue, particularly on military bases. But I didn't have, um, well, you know, I didn't have any real experience in terms of addiction. Um, uh, I've been around people who, you know, at the time drank a lot of alcohol and, And in in college, you know, did you do the things that other college students uh, do. And, you know, looking back, you see sort of the signs of, oh, yeah, so-and-so stopped drinking. And, you know, they decided they had a problem. But it it was not something that was in in your face, really. Um, So, you know, travel all over the place in a strict military kind of environment.
0: And I can relate because I grew up the government. same way. My um, dad was in the went Air Force. to college in Johnson,
1: and, and yeah, um, and then um, when I graduated from college, I had a four year um, obligation to the military because I had an ROTC scholarship. Uh, I deferred that to go to law school in D.C. at George Washington University. And after that, I went into the military as a JAG officer for four years, um, and I was stationed out near Chicago. So that's uh, kind of the early years. Um, You know, I didn't really have... I didn't really...
0: You, fr- notice or you start froze up prosecutor. there, Rick, you oh, froze sorry. up a little bit. So um, okay. you, you did mention you thought you might have some Wi-Fi issues. It, it looks like you may a little bit. But anyway, yeah. you were just saying, I'm not sure where you were going. You were, you were saying you didn't really have. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. So we're talking about my early years. Um, I guess I got us through law school
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I went in the Army.
0: I mm-hmm.
1: uh, spent four years, uh, on active duty as a JAG officer in the army, uh, got out, went to work for a government agency in DC at the department of transportation for a couple of years and got interested in doing prosecution work, uh, on a detail to the U S attorney's office in DC, uh, and decided I wanted to be a prosecutor, um, got a job in department of justice, uh, in the tax division. So doing criminal tax cases. So the two areas that I had told myself as I was going through law school that I would never practice in would, were criminal law and tax law.
0: Never say never. Six years
1: out of law school. Mm -hmm. Exactly. God, God has a way of, of uh, kind of putting you in your place when you do that. So six years out of law school, I was doing criminal tax work. And I did that for several years uh, and then ended up in uh, Abingdon at the U.S. Attorney's Office um, around 1995. You know, one of the things I noticed when I was prosecuting cases in Abingdon, particularly the the normal kind of cases, not the Purdue Pharma kind of cases, but the unlawful possession of guns and drugs and other property crimes, was that A large majority of the defendants, they they would uh, when they came through the court system, uh, it would come to light that they either had either a drug problem or an alcohol problem. Uh, And that kind of struck me that that kind of hit me is, you know, wow, uh, that is really an issue because people who are addicted to either drugs or alcohol, they're the ones that are coming through and being prosecuted criminally. They're they're involved in other crimes, uh, probably related to that addiction. So that would be kind of my first thoughts about addiction.
0: Right. I'm going to ask you something that I possibly should have researched before I spoke to you, but I'm in, in where I live. We have what's called um, city judges and then we have county judges and the county or circuit court judges and the circuit court judges are the ones that do the crime. How does that compare to what a U.S. attorney does? When does it become a U.S. attorney issue?
1: Yeah. So, uh, the U S attorney d- represents the government in federal court. So, so you have state crimes or local crimes and you have federal crimes. Uh, and so, the federal crimes are normally investigated by a federal law enforcement agency like the fbi or the dea or the atf
0: and is that when when the crime uh like crosses state lines like all of a sudden it's not just a virginia problem or a maryland problem it's now a u.s problem
1: yeah so normal normally yes it's it's a it's it's a case it's not just a purely local some local individual um violated uh, a law state law could it could even be a violation of federal law but there's normally has to be a federal connection and the federal cl- connection is normally uh crossing state lines now all drugs and all guns uh can be prosecuted as both because those inherently they cross state lines drugs uh you know they they, they don't they come in through uh uh they, they aren't homegrown generally they cross state lines and guns are usually manufactured out of state so so those can be prosecuted as both and so then it's a decision as to what's what's in the best interest of the people should it be federal or state
0: understood okay so, I think we're probably pretty close to the part of your story that leads into you and your partner beginning to investigate Purdue Pharma. Tell us how that happened.
1: So, in uh, far southwest Virginia, not as to be distinguished from southern West Virginia, we're in Virginia in the far southwest corner that borders Tennessee. North Carolina,, um, West Virginia, and Kentucky uh, that it's known it's the Appalachian region and uh, it, coal mining is big business down there. That's the main employer along with farming. Um, it has always had um, a prescription pill problem uh, for decades, way before even the Purdue Pharma case way before they became, you know something that was spread across the country, uh, because a lot of people get injured on the job and they go to the doctor and they get they've been getting pain pills for years, and the public benefits programs make it very cheap to get get pain pills. So instead of abusing the street drugs like cocaine and you know others that are uh, abused in the more urban areas, uh, pills have always been a problem down there. One of the things that our office decided to do was a little three-man office. And so we decided to um, look at doctors that were over-prescribing pain pills. So we started doing that in the late 1990s, around 97, 98, 99. And we prosecuted several doctors for over-prescribing. What we saw in those prosecutions was a trend moving away from the Lortabs and the Percocets to OxyContin it looked like what we saw was that Oxycontin was the became, had become the drug of choice was being widely prescribed and was the drug that was being requested by individuals who were doctor shopping and, and trying to find, you know, go to pill mills. Um, what we also were seeing at the same time was a huge increase in property crimes occurring in, you know, in our communities down in that area. And the local, Um, Law enforcement officers, the local sheriffs were telling us that those property crimes were being fueled by people trying to get money to buy OxyContin. Uh, The third thing we we saw or we heard about were pharmacists complaining about Purdue sales representatives being very aggressive. And, you know, you think about a pharmacist in a small town who knows everybody. And somebody walks in with a prescription for OxyContin. They they kind of know what's going on. They know who ha- who um, has a legitimate need for that. And so they they were sometimes reluctant to fill those prescriptions, and they were getting pressured by Purdue Pharma sales reps. And we heard complaints about that. So we took those you know those three uh, things that those three facts. Uh, and it, we had a discussion, you know, Randy and I had it, Randy Ramsire who's also depicted in the, uh, miniseries. And I had a discussion one day. I kind of remember this. I don't remember a lot because it's been years ago, but I remember this, we're just sitting around the office after work one day and talking about these things. And, you know, we, you know, one of us said, I think I said, or we, we discussed, Hey, maybe we ought to open a case on Purdue, uh, Because in law enforcement, you want to go to the highest level of supply and something didn't seem feel right about uh, what was going on with OxyContin. Uh, So we opened a case, uh, I think, in probably about middle of 2001. Right when there was a transition of U.S. attorneys, uh, we were allowed to open a case and. Uh, based on those reasons. And, and, you know, it was one of those things where, well, we didn't know what we were going to find. But my feeling was, well, we have an obligation to our community, which looks like it's getting devastated by OxyContin. We have an obligation to look and see what's going on. So that's how that got started. Uh,
0: First of all, it's interesting when you talk about the fact that even pre-OxyContin, that there was an issue with pain pills. You know, without and I I don't like I don't fault the people who were abusing the pain pills because we've had on the we've had on the podcast several times professional athletes and they say you know painkillers are a part of the job description and you know because you can't sit out every game on the bench because you're in pain you have to get up and you have to play and it's the same thing with the miners and the farmers they cannot not go to work because they're in pain. So they, they have to handle that. And which is obviously what Purdue banked on when they started doing what they did with Oxycontin. But I guess I just kind of wanted to make that editorial comment that it's, it's one of the, those are professions that fall victim to this type of thing because of the nature of the profession because it's physical because it causes problems because you know mining can cause lung issues and that causes pain so anyway that was just kind of a natural comment
1: i agree with that 100% the thing to remember also is if a miner gets injured and they have they have pain and they don't go to work they don't get paid right so it's a matter of basically it's a matter of of putting food on the table really to figure out a way to push through that pain, take a painkiller and get to work because if you're not at work, you don't you're not, you know, you don't clock in, you don't get a paycheck. Right. And so that, yeah, I 100% agree with your yep. comment.
0: Yep, and I I just wanted to make that comment cuz I don't want people out there thinking, oh yeah, they you know, they're just ignorant workers. No, no, no. That's not the that's not the situation there. So, um okay, so you've got this you've got three pretty heavy duty indicators that there could be something going on. And then you have to take that to your boss and your boss goes, okay, you can open up a case.
1: Yeah. So interesting that we were in the transition period. And so the outgoing U S attorney wanted us to wait till he had left the interim U S attorney. Um, you know, she was the first assistant, so she was there for several months before John Brownlee was finally confirmed. She allowed us to open the case then. And then when John Brownlee came in, you know, we had the conversation with him, and he was very much interested in us uh, moving forward on it. And so basically, basically green lighted it. Uh, and and of course, in that kind of a case, having worked in D.C. previously, I knew that we needed the U.S. attorney to, to beef all in and to back us because that case was going to get scrutinized at many different levels.
0: Right. Exactly. Because Purdue has a lot of money, and the Sackers have a lot of money, and that and money can fo- get channeled into areas that can put the kibosh on such an investigation. So, okay, yes. so now you've you're, you've got the green light, take us a little bit from there. What did, how did you guys then proceed and who did you talk to? And
1: yeah. So one of the first thing was, Hey, we needed to get staffing. We needed to have investigators and agents on the case because unlike most, I would say nearly all cases that a U.S. attorney's office does are generated by an investigative agency one of the what they used to what they call the alphabet soup atf fbi dea all those invest this case was originated by the u.s attorney's office which is very very unusual so we had to go out and look for folks to staff the case and you know one interesting thing is of course we went first to the fbi um they they had a very small satellite office in Bristol, about 15 miles from Ab- Abingdon. Bristol is right on the border with Tennessee. Uh, in fact, half of Bristol is in Virginia and half of Bristol is in Tennessee. And they ran it up their chain of command. And this was after 9-11. So what they told us was, we don't have the resources to investigate this Uh, kind of a case because we are all in on anti-terrorism okay the other thing in hindsight was you know i
0: that's right sorry to interrupt you but you said you started this in like mid 2001 yeah
1: so when Brownlee john Brownlee took office like a couple right to almost you know two days before 9-11 oh my goodness and so yeah we're in the midst of that In addition, so, you know, there was a lot of things going on that kind of delayed the start of the case, because obviously there was a lot of um, work being done with respect to anti-terrorism at that time. The FBI was was busy. okay, Uh, but I also think that there was a political aspect going on, because what I recall is that there was a discussion about, well, Purdue's actually working with. Federal agencies on you know the, the 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 drug diversion problem, and you know we're not sure whether there's anything there for uh, FBI. So so FBI's out. Okay, DEA. We con- you know contacted them. That's the next logical agency, and uh, so they were willing to send a couple of investigators down from DC. 360 miles from us, by the way, to, you know, maybe every once in a while to help us serve subpoenas or something like that, completely inadequate, Uh, you know, at the time, didn't know why it was like, you know, what's, what's going on with that, that's almost worthless. But now upon, you know, seeing, reading more facts and seeing, talking to different people and, and watching the Hulu series, there obviously was some internal uh, political things going on at DEA. All right. So we reached out, I reached out to uh, the Virginia attorney general's office, which had a fairly new, but small Medicaid fraud control unit. Okay. And I also reached out. I started making calls to FDA Um, based on a, um, relationships that have been built with the medicaid fraud control unit or the head of the medicaid fraud control unit randy klaus he had previously worked for the bingo or the, the virginia gaming commission so he investigated bingo um, unlawful bingo uh games right and uh and, and so this is i, I kind of tease him about this I had worked, I had been the prosecutor on a case that he had brought along with the IRS uh, to our office uh, for unlawful bingo. Basically, it was, would turn out to be like a mail fraud case. Um, so he's a guy, he's 6'4", and he's he's just this huge guy. He's like 300, 350 pounds. But he was coming, he was driving from Richmond down to Bristol. Uh, you know, uh, that's that's a, what, three... Five hour drive. okay. And he was going undercover into these bingo halls. And, you know, you picture back then there was a lot of smoking going on and it was a lot of, you know, no offense because I'm an old guy, too. But little old ladies playing bingo. And here in walks this six foot four, three hundred and fifty pound guy to play bingo with. okay. Uh, And I I always try to picture that and just say, wow, how did you how did you do that? But he had gotten promoted to be the head of the Medicaid Fraud Control Unit. So I called him up and said, hey, we got this case. Can you staff help us staff it? And he immediately jumped on it and gave us two full-time agents.
0: Wow. Um, continue.
1: Okay. So so we get this, okay, we got, make, we got a couple of agents, and they're going to work on it full-time, which the feds never do. And this is the kind of case that needs to be worked on full-time because it's going to be hard it's going to be a lot of documents, a lot of witnesses, and you can't do a case like that part time. So we got that. Uh, meanwhile, I'm making calls to the FDA and saying and trying to just understand, because I don't know nothing. I don't know anything about these kind of cases. And I'm calling the FDA and saying, hey, I need to learn. Can you tell, tell me about how this process works? How do drugs get approved? I'm going to FDA 101, prescription drug you know, one Oh one kind of on my own. And as I'm making those calls that generates a ripple and the FDA has an office of criminal investigation. Hmm. They hear that we're trying to do something with Oxycontin. They, they contact us and say, Hey, we hear you're trying to do some case that involves an FDA matter and we want to participate. And so, but you know, they give us two agents, Part time because they're in DC, 360 miles from Abingdon, six, minimum six hour drive. Yep. But so we have FDA, FDA on board, and then IRS has a local agent. They give us one of their agents to help us with the financial pieces. So that was kind of the core uh, investigative group at the very beginning. Um, we hire if we got FDA to hire us a contractor to do the document to focus only on documents and do the document management and then we went on from there
0: wow so you had to put together a team and and obviously yeah and so the feds weren't necessarily going to get involved in it but you have a team now okay keep going
1: yes and i have a team but i don't know anything about how to do prescription drugs (laughs) and what that's all about so lots of reading lots of phone calling uh, you know, and, and you have to know all that stuff in order to know what kind of documents to ask for
0: and what questions so it, to ask. Yeah. Yeah, 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 right.
1: And 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 so that was a process that probably probably took several months. Um, I, I'm pretty sure we, you know we made multiple trips to the FDA headquarters to talk to people. I remember being in there. Uh, back then, it was called the Division of Drug Marketing. Um, the, 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 folks there, the office there that reviewed the promotional materials, uh, they had like a little basement office that, well, a big basement office full of documents and very few people that opened off into a loading dock, if I remember correctly. And, and just talking to different people in different sections of the FDA to figure out, to learn how the process works, worked, uh, how drugs got approved, how labels got approved. What kind of oversight did FDA do with marketing and promotional materials, learning all that kind of stuff. And that took probably took several months. And I think we ended up uh, being in a position to issue uh, a subpoena to the company. The first subpoena to the company, probably uh, a good year. It took a good year to get to that position, December of 2002, if I recall correctly.
0: And when you were looking at the FDA, I know that there was an issue with the fellow who approved a label, which was somewhat less than, um, what can we say? Adequately, um, cautionary.
1: I think you're being very, very generous. Okay. (laughs) The, uh, so the first thing you, you know, I learned was, well, read the label. Cause that tells the, tells everybody what the company's allowed to say about the drug. And when you go to the label, what popped out, what jumps out at you is, is delayed absorption as provided by Oxycontin tablets is believed to reduce the abuse liability of a drug. Now, I didn't know anything about drugs at all, but when I read that, I knew that that was nonsense. That was completely ridiculous and raised the question about, well, how in the world did that language get into this label? Because it, it was being used by their sales reps to say, hey, even the FDA agrees with us that OxyContin is less addictive, less abusable, et cetera. There's, there's words there, but when you read them and you think about them, they abs- mean absolutely nothing. And all they are is a marketing tool. So th- th- that, that, that told me at least two things number one there's a case here there's something going on here and number two there's something something fishy about how this drug got approved so that guy's name was is curtis wright i will i want to say this it's public record it's in um, in various publications it's in the hulu series he was an fda medical officer who reviewed oxycontin's uh, data to make the determination of whether it was safe and effective, and he also was the medical officer who approved the labeling. Okay, and he's also the medical officer who, after the approval of OxyContin and this label with this this uh, very, I think, um, dangerous language in it, he went to work for Purdue. Uh, he made a stop to make it look good for about maybe a year, a year and a half with another company, but to, you know, to me, the goal was always to end up at Purdue, where he made four hundred thousand dollars, four probably four times or so what he was making at FDA. Now, I, I told this to Patrick uh, Raiden Keith in, in his book uh, Empire of Pain. I told him that. Um, I thought there was some deal cut between Curtis Wright and Purdue to get the drug approved and to get that favorable wording into the label, but I could never prove that there was the quid pro quo and there's nothing illegal and nothing, um, uh, that violates a regulation for a person who works for FDA to review a company's drug. And then turn around and go to work for the company.
0: And, and believe Unethical me, I Unethical at best, probably, you know, yes. but conflict of interest, but illegal, I guess not. Okay.
1: Yes. And I spent a lot of time looking because I, I said, there, this is corrupt. It is corrupt with a little C, but it's not corrupt in terms of being able to prosecute somebody, you know.
0: Understood. Okay, oh, just by the way, as a side note, is that label is a picture of that label at all available anywhere cuz I would pop it into this interview and show that wording. Just curious.
1: You know, I've never tried to look for it. Uh I wouldn't be surprised if you could find it on the internet somewhere. Okay. Um because I had been, I had basically memorized that wording. I see <laughs> that I didn't need to look at yeah look for, I see because that. it was yeah. such it was it was such a uh to me it was just such a obvious blatant uh piece of wrongdoing yeah
0: fraud total fraud it,
1: it was, yeah and so so that was something that whenever I interviewed I interviewed we interviewed a lot of people and I would I would want I, would, my one of my questions would be how did who came up with this language so I ended up committing it to memory because I asked questions about it so often.
0: And was it Curtis Wright that came up with the wording or was it Purdue that came up with the wording?
1: Well, that's, that's, that's the question. I think that there have been reports. And I think uh, what we found out was that, and I remember this now. Yes. You know, a lot of things come back after 14 or 15 years. (laughs) Curtis Wright met with the Purdue Uh, team that was going through and and trying to get fda to approve oxycontin and he met with them uh i I believe on more than one occasion and met with them as i recall at a hotel off off site from fda kind of you know on their own again nothing per se illegal and i believe that FDA, uh, I believe that uh, the Purdue staff wrote his medical officer reviews. Okay. Now, you know, at the time I was thinking, well, you know, I, I've worked with and I've looked at a lot of government bureaucrats. And yeah, I could see someone who doesn't want, you know, that's a bureaucrat nine to fives taking what the company wrote, looking at it, and yeah, using Yeah, just it tell as me what
0: you want to say. Okay. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: And I'll look at it. And there was some language in those reviews that made it clear that OxyContin was not better than immediate release. Okay. Drugs was not better than the Percocets and the warp tabs. It was equal to, and that it's adverse event. That's, that's a technical term that FDA uses, but basically the, it would, it would relate to, you know, people suffering from symptoms of addiction or withdrawal or that kind of thing. Adverse events, were not any better than your immediate release, your your other your other opioids, okay? Mm-hmm. So that even if um, Purdue wrote that, it seemed to be straight up. Now, I don't know how whether what Curtis Wright's involvement was in that delayed absorption language because that's completely the opposite. That language is completely the opposite of what he signed off on on those safety and efficacy reviews. Uh, but I suspect that Purdue had a big hand in writing that language and that if, even if he didn't write it, Curtis Wright approved it in the label. And and there was a back and forth between him and one of his staffers who, a staffer who questioned that language and said, is this just marketing BS? Isn't this just marketing BS? And his response, uh, which is, I think documented in a number of places, was, no, it's literally true. Well, okay, it's a literally true statement, but it's nonsensical and shouldn't be in a label for a dangerous drug.
0: Wow. Wow, Purdue really had their ducks in a row, didn't they?
1: Well, if again, if anybody wants to see how the Sackler family worked and Purdue is sort of an extension of the Sackler family, and I'm sure I know we're going to get into discussing the Sackler family, uh Patrick Keefe's book Empire of Pain gives great insight into that because the playbook that was used to market um OxyContin was the same playbook used by um Richard Sackler's father and uncles
0: Arthur, right?
1: Yeah, Arthur Raymond and Mortimer to um market the the antipsychotics um
0: and valium
1: and, and uh, valium and also uh they were involved in the marketing of the first generation of antibiotics in the same way okay in a very similar way they they had established that playbook they made valium sort of a everyday drug for everybody right? mother's
0: little helper the little exactly. blue pill, yeah so for the stressed out and, mom yep
1: and they and what they did was they co-opted an fda official okay To to help them to help them get that drug through and they created uh, bogus uh, marketing materials based on studies and based on testimonials from non-existent people almost in the same and and that play that playbook was followed by um, Richard Sackler and the Sackler family for the marketing of oxycontin only oxycontin being a much more dangerous drug.
0: Yep. Okay. So you found Curtis Wright and you found the wording on the label. And where did that lead you?
1: Um, yes. <laughs> Reconstructing from 15 year, 15, 16, 17 years ago. That's, that's a, that's a tall task.
0: I understand.
1: Um, so that led us, that, you know, led in many directions. One of the things that uh, I wanted to look at was how the drug was being promoted. Uh, so I started looking at promotional materials. Uh, one of the things I do have a distinct memory of was the uh, the video they did uh, called "I Got My Life Back." Again, the p- part of the playbook is to use testimonials of um, to 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 you know sell the drug to say, "Hey, look at these testimonials from these people that are using a drug who are telling it, people how great it is, how they got, they prior to the. drug taking oxycontin their lives were miserable they didn't really have lives because of the pain and after taking oxycontin they were now able to do all the things they used to do before they had the pain problem so I, i i remember watching that video and i was watching it at home just sort of as it was depicted in the hulu series um i didn't have a basement that's a little bit different, but I had, you know, I was at home in like a little sunroom that we had watching it. And I remember watching it, you know, a couple of times and saying, I don't see anything here, but something doesn't feel right. So I probably watched it five or six times until I noticed that, you know, this is a promotional piece about OxyContin, but none of the uh, participants are, saying oxycontin they're ta- saying the pain pills um you know the medicine that kind of thing and i said so and I, and I verified that it was this was used as an oxycontin marketing piece because it had the oxy it would show a picture of uh i would show one of those uh i think it was six individuals speaking and it'd have a dosage for oxycontin um superimposed underneath them and at the end there was sort of the disclaimer language that they have to put into those, uh, kind of marketing pieces about Oxycontin. So I said, well, I wonder if they really are taking Oxycontin and, and, you know, for the most part, they were, uh, except for one guy, uh, his name was Johnny. He was kind of the star of the show. He was sort of the Southern gentleman who was the construction worker. They depicted him driving, uh, a backhoe after after supposedly he was on Oxycontin and was able to get back out and work. They showed him feed. He, had, he was raising you know bloodhounds or dogs, hunting dogs, and they showed him feeding his hunting dogs, and that was the kind of video that would really resonate down in you know um, Appalachia. Mm-hmm. And uh, Johnny, it, as it turns out, and and uh, we, you know we went and saw his his the physician that's in that uh, Dr. Spanos and talked to him. Started on Oxycontin, but he had to quit because it was too expensive and he would, really wasn't taking Oxycontin, notwithstanding what the video was promoting. Hmm. Um, so that was that, you know, we did a lot of work on that piece and went to the advertising agency. They used to make it up in New York and tried to run down, hey, who and who in Purdue actually did this and knew that they were using at least one person who wasn't on Oxycontin. uh I looked at a lot of the um, actual handouts they were taking to doctor's offices and looking for what they were representing in there. And so the other thing they represented that was completely bogus was the blood level charts. And and so they were trying to say that the different, you know, even though the FDA's uh, review said there's no real qualitative difference between oxycontin and other opioids except for oxycontin you only have to take it twice a day instead of four times a day for the others the percocets the lortabs all that they were promoting it as well the blood levels are different from oxycontin you get this smooth continuous um blood level of oxycodone for 12 hours timed release because it's time release because of this time release system but as compared to the immediate release drugs you get these spikes you get these peaks and valleys so the spikes euphoria and the valleys are uh withdrawal you don't therefore you know you got euphoria that means people are going to want to go and take more of it and going to get addicted to it and they want to abuse it and if you have the the valleys you have um, withdrawal, and now you got people that are looking for the drug to stave off withdrawal. Well, guess what? Oxycontin doesn't do that. Was their pitch?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When you act- and so they had these blood level charts they were using that made sort of tried to make that case, but when you actually looked at the data, the there was almost no difference between the two blood levels. Okay. So so did, so
0: did they just like stretch it out or condense it or
1: Yeah, they 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 made a chart. They they made a chart where um and it's shown on the Hulu mini series. Yeah, I remember. Yes. It, they made a blood level chart that is logarithmic. Okay, it's not so you go from 0 to to you know 5 to 10 then it goes to 20 to, to 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 eighty. And so you have a chart where the high numbers are at the at the very top are compressed. And yep. so now if you put it in so you've manipulated the chart to make your curve a lot smoother.
0: You just change um, the scale.
1: It's changed the scale and you go to the doctor's office, you say, Hey, look, your other drugs. And they would draw the what, what we used to call shark fins. Your other drugs have the shark fin effect of blood levels. And so your patients that you're given Lortabs or Percocets to are getting high and then are going through withdrawal every four hours. If you give them Oxycontin, we have this smooth, continuous flow. And they don't have those uh, peaks and valleys where they're getting high or going through withdrawal.
0: You are listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast, or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com, or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727 314 7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby.
1: That was all a big lie. a huge lie to convince doctors to prescribe Oxycontin if they were, you know, and, and the pitch was, Hey, if you're concerned about abusers, prescribe Oxycontin, it'll weed them out because they don't get high on it and, and, and uh, a complete lie. And again, in our part of the country, doctors were concerned about drug seekers. And so they were switching folks from those other opioids to Oxycontin in, in droves. Yep. So there, so there was that marketing piece and, and several other. So we, you know, we started digging into the documents and the marketing pieces uh, we were doing, we were going out and interviewing folks to find out what, um, what they were tr- told the former, former employees, former sales reps to find out what they were told to say, Uh, with how they were trained. Um, We started uh, getting the call notes where sales reps were reporting back to headquarters, what they were seeing and what they were being told about abuse and addiction to OxyContin. Uh, So we were gathering all that information um, um, probably for a, for a fairly long period of time.
0: Okay. And So then you gather all that information, then you have to take it to your boss when you have enough that you think you can prosecute.
1: Yeah. So in the meantime, you know, um, we're giving him regular updates. Um, I'm giving the supervisors for the agents that have been provided to us, uh, quarterly updates of, Hey, here's what we're found. Here's where we're going to go next. We're, We're out. The team is out. We're all out. Um, doing cold call interviews, basically for the most part, uh, kind of my theory was that, you know, people know you're coming, they're going to be very cautious. They're going to be worried about, uh, you know, what, what their former employer Purdue Pharma is going to say, they're going to maybe spin stuff. They're going to be worried about where they, what their role is. So we would do cold call interviews and those, those will last maybe 15 to 45 minutes, but you get sort of the first impression from them in those interviews, Um, so we put the case together, uh, regularly, uh, regular updates to the boss. Hey, Rick, how
0: many interviews would you say you did? Just curious if you had a ballpark.
1: So I think for the team, we, uh, we probably did, um, 250 interviews. Okay. You know, I, I probably did 50 or more that I went on, um, you know, what, what had happened was that we, we issued the first, we start we opened the case in 2001. We issued the first subpoena in 2002, the first request for records in 2002. We we're, we, you know, we were gathering records, reviewing records through about 2004, maybe started interviewing people, but I realized, and at at the time, you know, Randy and I were both working, doing other cases. And I realized at the time, sometime around the end of 2004, that if we're going to make this case work, one of us has to do it full time. You can't kind of do it piecemeal and spend one day working on uh, Purdue, go work on uh, a gun or a drug case for a day and try to come back and figure out what what did I do last time and where do I need to go next on Purdue? So we decided that I would, you know, get rid of all my other cases. And in January 2005, I don't remember this was too cold, I basically moved out of our um, little office in the strip mall in Abingdon, the U.S. Attorney's Office, where the U.S. Attorney's Office was, and moved into the um, offsite location where we had most of our records and basically vacated my office for almost two years just to work on Purdue um yeah wow so
0: are we we up to the chicken story yet or not yet
1: yeah yeah I think the chicken story gosh that came on fairly early on um it would have been after we'd issued the request for records to Purdue. So they knew that they were under investigation. Uh, probably for those who haven't after...
0: watched Dope Sick, you have to tell the chicken story. <laughs>
1: right. Um, so we had issued our subpoena. We were doing a lot of back and forth with the lawyers for Purdue about produ- producing records and the large volume and which ones did we want first? And, you know, what else do we need? And we... You know, probably had issued multiple subpoenas. We had they probably knew we were out interviewing folks um, doing cold calls. And out of the blue, um, somebody from the deputy attorney general's office, who at the time was James Comey, called uh, John Brownlee, the U.S. attorney. And just so for folks that don't know this, the U S attorneys are all directly supervised by the deputy attorney general. So John, basically John Brownlee's supervisor uh, was summoning him to the main, main justice in DC because he had concerns, I guess I think it was concerns about our investigation of Purdue pharma. Okay. And so I, I, I know John, uh, John Brownlee and I went, I think Randy was undergoing, I think may have been undergoing his, his, uh, cancer treatments then and couldn't go. John Brownlee and I went to DC. We go into the main justice building at 10th and constitution, uh, to meet with, um, the deputy attorney general, John Brownlee's boss, James Comey. We go into the conference room. And, uh, the first thing that Mr. Comey says is, tell me why you guys are investigating the chicken guy. And John and I look at each other and said, chicken guy. Yeah. Why are you investigating Purdue farms? And he had, I said, well, Oh no, 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 no. We're not investigating the chicken guy. We're not investigating Purdue farms. We're investigating Purdue pharma and it's a pharmaceutical company and it's spelled with a U and not an E. Uh, So that conversation occurred. Now it's very much dramatized Yes. in the Hulu series, yes. but there was a question there was, there was some confusion there at the beginning. Okay. Um, and the discussion was whether or not Purdue pharma, not the chicken guy, but the pharmaceutical company was a publicly traded company or not. Because back in those days, the department was just coming out of the Enron Arthur Anderson debacle Had issued new guidelines about uh, the prosecution of publicly traded corporations. Okay. And there was a lot of scrutiny of that. And so when we informed um, deputy attorney general Comey that Purdue Pharma was a family owned business and not a uh, publicly traded company, He said, okay, that's fine. You guys go do your investigation and make your case.
0: Awesome. Awesome. It's a funny story, but thank you for adding that in. So now I took you totally off the track. So um, 2004, you are now full time on this investigation.
1: Yeah, probably at the end of 2004, in December, like, you know, right right after the new year, maybe January, I, I go move full-time into the investigation, dig into all the documents. We start interviewing witnesses. My goal is to get to some place where we're near completion of the investigation as quickly as we can. Um, a lot of um, back and forth with the company attorneys about document productions and what's what's there, what's not. Um, you know, a massive privilege log where they've withheld documents or pieces of documents on based on the potential for attorney-client privilege or attorney-work product. And so a lot of dealings with that, a lot of interviews uh, taking place, so a lot of travel around the country. Um, and then into that takes us into 2006. And now we're, you know, reaching a place where the the case is kind of getting formed in my mind okay and so i start writing the prosecution memo the famous or infamous prosecution memo which i have not seen probably in 12 or more years but a lot of other people seem to have have seen it (laughs) (laughs) um and yeah i think uh it's been reported to be about 120 pages, which sounds about right. And so that is a is something that took me a long time to write. Uh, when I do it, and I'm going to speak generically because the prosecution memorandum I know has grand jury material in it. But when I just gen- generally, when I write a prosecution uh, memorandum, especially for an a, for a complex case that's going to get a lot of scrutiny, I want to have. Uh, every fact that I refer to in that prosecution memo, I want to be able to tie it to a piece of evidence, whether it's a document or an interview. And so uh, the way I wrote prosecution memos and the way I would still do that if I were still writing them is to state a fact, you know, Purdue, for example, Purdue Pharma um, promoted Oxycontin as less addictive and less abusable and then I would have like a footnote that would refer to whatever documents or whatever evidence I had to support that fact. Now, if, as you can imagine, 120 page cross memo, that would be a very laborious and lengthy task. And the other thing I wanted to do was have a notebook. Now would be digital a folder on my computer, but back then we we're still using notebooks that would have every document referred to in that prosecution memo available to be re- to, to be reviewed so that took several weeks to put that together at the same time we're trying to wrap up the investigation
0: but but how smart to do it that way and to make sure that and i i know you know to do this but to make sure you cross all your T's and dot all your I's because obviously Purdue has billions of dollars and many, many lawyers, high power lawyers, including Rudy Giuliani. And you know, that they're going to be able to come after. And so you have to do that. You have to, you have to take that kind of time. You have to do that.
1: Yes. And so Joni, I knew having worked in DC at the, at main justice for almost nine years, and having seen some of the political go- goings on and, and knowing that um, defendants or potential defendants in criminal cases who can afford to hire um, you know, expensive and uh, connected lawyers, that they hire people who can pick up the phone and call the attorney general or who go and have lunch with the deputy attorney general, knowing that and suspecting that anticipating that would happen in a case like Purdue Pharma. What I was thinking when I was writing that process memo was I needed to write this. So, so in a way that they don't have an excuse to throw our case out the window. Okay. that means I've got to, as you said, you know, figuratively cross every T and dot every I and, and show that we've investigated every angle and every potential defense in this case.
0: And when you state a fact, here's where that fact came from. Correct. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. So that was my, you know, kind of understanding and my objective in writing that process memo. My thinking was, Hey, if I leave something that is, if I leave something uninvestigated or if I leave a hole in this case, they're going to have a real easy excuse to toss it. And I want to make it as hard as I possibly can. For somebody who's political, you know, that's got that's in the political realm, to listen to a Purdue lawyer and say you're right, I found fa- I found a loophole here. I'm tossing the case.
0: Wow. So you it took you several weeks to write that. So then, what happened after you finished it? Where did it go, and what was the response?
1: So, for me. You know, and I had the, the the rest of the team. Of course, Randy and we had two lawyers from uh, the Department of Justice's Consumer Protection Branch, is what it's known as now. Basically, the people that do the uh, office in the Department of Justice that oversees cases involving the FDA. I would ha- I would have had the team review it. Um, I would have then sent it to my boss. He then. Would have reviewed and approved it, and then it would have gone up. And I can't remember whether he sent it up or we would have sent it up to the Department, of, the main Department of Justice's Criminal Division, in the Fraud Section. Okay, uh, they would have then reviewed it. And this kind of case, given the the amount of money involved, the issue involved, uh, the publicity that it would would generate. They would have staffed it through their chain of command up to the Deputy Attorney General's office. At the same time, um, produced lawyers. You know, they they knew we were what we were doing. Uh, we kind of engaged them, and and we're beginning had engaged them to talk about kind of you know normally what we would we did in those kind of cases where, where we were dealing with other lawyers was to make a presentation. Hey, we've done our case. Here's what we found. If you want to talk about a way to resolve this before we go to court, now's the time. So we had afforded them that opportunity. And of course what they did was they went to the, back to the department of justice, to the deputy attorney general's office. And the deputy attorney general at the time, at that time was uh, McNulty, um, Comey had left and McNulty had, um, uh, delegated the case down to the assistant attorney general for criminal, um, Alice Fisher. So she was sort of uh, hands-on person. She was not the decision maker. Okay. But she was the person that was delegated to, okay, hear what, uh, hear what the prosecutors have to say. Uh, Hear what the defense attorneys have to say and and come up with a recommendation to go to the deputy attorney general. All right. So. I guess the next um, important event was we get word, hey, uh, assistant attorney general Fisher is meeting with defense attorneys. And she's, you know, she's, she's given them a couple of hours on this particular day in 2006. Okay. Um, and let me back up because, you know, this, the Hulu series, let me back up a little bit here. Okay. <clears throat> so before that, before the dealings at Department of Justice, we were engaging with the Purdue attorneys. We made our presentation they, call, they uh, called us to their offices in D.C. to make their presentation. And, and, you know, this is normal process. They made a presentation. What their pitch was, here's why you shouldn't be prosecuting Purdue or any of its, its executives.
0: Look at all these poor people that need Oxycontin, Mr. Mountcastle. Part of
1: it. Yes. It's a very good drug. Uh, if you prosecute Purdue, you're going to deprive all of these people um, who really need this medication, you're going to deprive them of their ability to get it. That's part of the pitch. Along with a lot of legal arguments, a lot of, uh, um, you know, some of which bear mentioning where they they had a, a couple of their main arguments were, this was a two day presentation, PowerPoint presentation they gave John Brownlee, me, and Randy. In D.C., uh, the, the an FDA chief counsel was there and, and our t- the team from the Department of Justice was there. Two day presentation. The two main points were, um, you know, in addition to the, hey, this is a good drug and you're going to deprive people who really need it of their ability to get it was, you know, what, you know, if in fact there was a. Um, false false statements and fraud being uh, done in the marketing of oxycontin it was done by a few rogue employees so you had the rogue employee defense um and you had um the other defense was what they called the learned intermediary defense the learned intermediaries in this case were your prescribing doctors you know, Oh, prescribing doctors, they can prescribe stuff on their own. They use their independent judgment. They're smarter than a Purdue sales rep. They wouldn't prescribe Oxycontin just because a Purdue sales rep told them to, they would be prescribing it because they thought there was a merit to it. So, so we had to listen to that for two days. So here's the, here's the interesting part of that is that, uh, so we were there for two days. We spent the night in DC at the end of the second day, at the, at the end of their presentation, John Brownlee said, hey, I want to gather my team together and, and talk to them. Uh, can you give us a room? They gave us a room. Uh, John gathers us around and says, does this change anything? The whole team says, no, it doesn't change anything. So he walked back in after we met for about two and a half minutes and, and said, hey, thank you for your presentation. It was very well done this doesn't change anything we're going forward <laughs> and you could kind of see the shock on the faces of the lawyers. Like you mean after this two days, all we've done, you guys do a two minute deliberation and you tell hey, us it doesn't mean anything. We, so
0: excuse me, but I, we know bullshit when we see it.
1: Yeah. And so, so that was, uh, that was, that was a fun point of, of, of that, uh, of that discussion. Uh, yes.
0: <laughs> okay. So then
1: we move into the Department of Justice. Meetings.
0: Okay. And Miss right. Fisher.
1: Yes. And, and of course, um, unlike most of those meetings that happen in other cases where the decision maker or the person that's been delegated to gather information as Ms. Fisher was, would meet with the prosecutors first. Okay. And then meet with, so, so we could kind of brief her up on the case and what we found. And here's what our investigation found. Then she could meet with the defense attorneys and hear sort of their, what their response was to all that. She met with them first. Okay. For at least two hours. Then we got, I think it was 30 minutes maybe with her. We made our presentation. We left after after, our, you know, maybe maybe we stretched out into 45 minutes, maybe an hour, but certainly less than what she gave the defense attorneys. And John Browning meets with her and he comes out and he's very much upset. And very much concerned that she's not going to let us go forward. And so, you know, that's where the political uh, things start to happen. Um, The company was willing to sack the, the Purdue, the Sackler family was willing to sacrifice the company. Okay. Uh, And they were willing to sacrifice the three executives up to a point. Okay. We were, we felt like we had enough evidence to prosecute the three executives for felonies. Um, And, and just to kind of put that in perspective, Our goal all along in the investigation was to determine who the highest level culpable individual in that company was for the wrongdoing uh, based on where the evidence led us to and based on the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt. So we had gotten to CEO Michael Friedman, general counsel and executive vice president Howard Udell. And medical director and executive vice president paul goldenheim we had gotten to that level using that standard what we anticipated was that if we went forward against them with felonies that one and possibly more than one would decide that they were looking at some serious prison time and they would need to try to cut a deal and that deal would involve them cooperating at, to the next level, which would be the Sackler family level, right? Uh, probably Richard Sackler, who was the, you know, immediately preceded Michael Friedman as the president and was appeared to be the shot caller, probably Richard Sackler. But, but we needed that cooperation at that CEO, general counsel level to get to the next level. What what happened was that the department would not let us do the, pro- the felony prosecutions. That was that was they succumbed to that political pressure. And so here's an interesting part of the the story. <clears throat> um, after the meeting at Department of Justice, where John Brownlee, w- in, in essence, was told, "We're not going to let you prosecute those individuals for felonies." And I think he was concerned that they weren't going to let us prosecute them at all. We went into meetings, settlement meetings with the Purdue lawyers. And one of the things that came out of those settlement meetings was whether or not, okay, so the company, Purdue Frederick or whatever the company name is, boom, they're they're gonna sacrifice that. There's a felony for for you guys, for you feds. Take it, you know, you ought to take that and declare victory. We'll give right a big check. Et cetera, et cetera. we were still wanting to hold individuals responsible and so the discussion was well we've got this misdemeanor and we went back and forth with the, their attorneys about whether or not they would even plead guilty to a misdemeanor and I remember one of the attorneys one of the defense attorneys and this was we've been you know this was towards in the, this was in the evening we'd been meeting for almost all day and into the evening said, Hey, we got we got all these smart uh, lawyers around us. Can't we come up with something that doesn't involve a criminal conviction? Okay, because these guys, you know, they're pillars of the community, blah, they've no prior record, all this stuff that you hear about those kind of guys. So we huddled up together and we said, you know, if the department's not gonna even let us prosecute them, maybe we need to have a fallback position. And our fallback position was, you know what? we can agree to some sort of a resolution that involves a disgorgement where they you know pay over all the money they made from their jobs as the the you know running the oxycontin running Purdue Pharma during oxycontin during this criminal wrongdoing and they can agree to lifetime bans from the industry so that was teed up on the table for them to and it was you know so you guys decide what you want either misdemeanors or this non-criminal resolution with a lifetime ban from the industry. So at that time, our thinking was this, okay? The department wasn't going to support us. The department was probably not going to let us prosecute these individuals for anything. What can we do to keep them from walking away scot-free and continuing to go about their merry way and do their business? Well, we can can have this non-criminal resolution where they get banned from the industry. That's at least something. That's at least some benefit. So that was teed up for him. Uh, and again, you know, kind of getting long winded, probably getting a little boring, but I remember being at home and Randy calling me on the phone this was in the evening, a couple of days later, a day or two later. And Randy calls me on the phone and, you know, Randy sometimes joked about things. And he said, it, sometimes in a very dry way. And he said, he says to me, Well, you know, they've decided they've decided they're going to take the the criminal charge. I said, yeah, Randy, right. You're you're just you're joking. He said, no, 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 I'm really serious this time. (laughs) So so, you know, at the time it was okay. that's great. We'll take that. We're tagging three executives for crimes. That's not been done in the pharmaceutical industry before. It's a starting point. It's, you know, we use these misdemeanors. Uh, it, it, it's uh, maybe there's some deterrence factor to it. people, other executives are going to see, hey, the government's going to come after you. You could get a criminal conviction uh, of some sort. You know there's risk involved, Maybe that will change behavior in the rest of the pharmaceutical industry. Turns out it didn't, but <laughs> um, so so that so looking back though, it was like, now I'm thinking, Twelve, thirteen years later, and reading a lot more information and watching, you know, stuff on uh, the documentaries that have been done, the Hulu miniseries that was done, there was some reason that the Sacklers told those three guys take the criminal misdemeanor, not the other. Okay. I'm convinced now, again, my personal opinion is that the Sacklers were making the decisions on what those three guys did. And they felt that the best way to protect the family was if they took those criminal misdemeanor charges.
0: Wow. Wow. I think you're right. I know. I I think you're absolutely right.
1: It, It turns out they got banned from, the pharmaceutical business for 12 years anyway. But uh, that doesn't hurt so, the
0: Sacklers. That only hurts them.
1: No, it doesn't. But again, you know, our our, our view was that this, the Purdue case was just one in a long line of pharmaceutical cases where the department went after pharmaceutical companies, secured convictions of some sort, either a misdemeanor or a felony against the company, had the company write a big check, And then let's do it all again. And our thinking was the only way you change corporate behavior is if you go and um, prosecute the decision makers, the corporate decision makers, because corporations don't do things by themselves. They have people making decisions uh, who are approving conduct, giving orders to commit certain violations. And and uh, establishing strategies that result in criminal violations. And the only way you change that behavior uh, all across the whole industry is to hold those corporate executives responsible one way or another, whether it's a felony or a misdemeanor conviction, and you do that as a, a, as a matter of course. Yep. And everybody knows that that's going to happen. And now, instead of, you know, What I would like to see is that CEOs, especially in the pharmaceutical industry, instead of getting their daily profit and loss statements and what's the stock price doing, and that's all I want to know about, that they also get the report that says, how are we doing with complying with the FDA rules and regulations and our obligation to the people that are using our drugs? And there's no incentive to do that.
0: Yep. I have to say, be, I just have to say that first of all, you are, you are a hero in my book, you and Randy and your staff for pursuing this. Um, might've been a lot easier on you to give up on it, but you guys didn't. And I think that there are, are a lot of people in this country and beyond who owe you a huge debt of gratitude for pursuing this area. I also want to say that um and it's not that it's just your job, but it a lot of people can't confront the type of evil that is the Sackler family and some of the Purdue execs and the fact that people would market the way they did, not really caring about how it affected the man, the man on the street, the guy taking the drug. And I think that, um, just, I, I, I thank you for pursuing this. And I, I'm, I'm glad that you're telling the story because I want to, I want to continue to shed light on this. The miniseries did a great job and it's dramatized and it's really good, but I like hearing everything from your perspective and um, you're a hero, Rick.
1: Well, thank you. That's very kind of Mm -hmm. you. Um, And, you know, uh, I was just doing my job at the time. Um, And-
0: Yeah, but but let let me just say something. Yeah, you may have just been doing your job, but Curtis Wright was doing his job. Okay, it's a little bit different, Rick.
1: Yeah, Curtis Wright was doing his job, but looking out for himself. He was using his job for his own self-interest, and there's a diff. There is a huge difference there. I agree with you. Yes. Um, I just felt a responsibility. Okay, to the community. Uh, I I felt a responsibility to the victims of who had gotten addicted because of the, you know, these, these lies that were told and, you know, I wish I could have done more. I wish that we had, okay. I wish that we had been able to prosecute those executives for felonies because they deserved it. I wish that one or two of them, one of them would have rolled over on one of the Sacklers because that, That's where the culpability uh, appears to have really been. And I wish that the department had decided that we do need to go after individuals. I mean, there was a lot of lip service. There were a lot of memos issued about that, but very little action. Uh, And it just, uh, it's, it's really disheartening, I guess. It's really disappointing, let me put it this way, that after 2007, um, we had this little blip for about five minutes of national news about this case, but then nothing. And we're now in, and in, 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 in it segued into the second phase of this horrendous opioid crisis. That that is really what is disappointing—that we are where we are now with opioid addiction.
0: I completely understand, I wish everything you wish, but you have to know that had you and Randy and Mr. Brownlee, had you not done everything that you did, the light that is being shed on the Sackler families today would not have been shed at all. And as I said this in an earlier podcast, they may win, A skirmish or two in the courts but they are never going to win in the court of public opinion and they cannot hide that is one of the good points and sometimes not so good points about the internet but they cannot hide they will not win in the court of public opinion and what you guys did opened that door and so while yeah I wish you could have gone after them as well. I absolutely cannot fault you for anything that you did. And you have to take a huge win on what you got done. You have to.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's what's done is done. And we did our best um, under the circumstances and under the limitations that were placed upon us by the decision makers at the department of justice. So, you know, that's, that's all been done. What I'm looking at now is so Purdue now is a two-time offender, right? And the conduct that's described in the uh, guilty plea in 2020 to me is worse than the conduct that we convicted him for in 2007. We, we prosecuted and got, some sort of convictions for three executives in this 2020 case which involves to me in my opinion worse conduct no individuals have been prosecuted there's something wrong about that
0: yep yep there you're you're absolutely correct and the other thing that i think what you guys did um kind of opens the door to and sheds a light on is the demand that's coming through from a lot of people for the DOJ to do their job.
1: Right. Yes. And uh, you know, I support that. I'm, you know, I support the, the victims um, to me. Those those are the real heroes. You have people who have lost a son or a daughter. I mean, I, I cannot imagine how, anything more devastating than that
0: I can't either to,
1: to, to, to uh, opioid overdoses and opi- and you got people who are families who are basically torn apart trying to deal with a loved one who is addicted to opioids. And from my perspective the those are the real heroes and I'm I was really glad that Danny Strong's miniseries highlighted the struggle that those and those folks are going through.
0: Yep. Yep. And we did an interview. um, I think it was the last interview we did with a filmmaker who made a documentary called Overdosed about Oxycontin being poured into West Virginia. And Mm -hmm. we interviewed two former addicts. And um, yeah, and they basically are heroes because they've come out the other side and took a lot of flack for speaking out um, against this whole situation. Um, I, anyway, I applaud you for what you did. I understand if you weren't as responsible as you are, you would be perfectly satisfied with everything you did. The fact that you wish you had done more is just more of a statement on your wanting to take responsibility. And I really, I applaud you. You, you did a fantastic job and Hopefully with this podcast and with, you know, dope sick, I'm recommending people look at overdosed that there's going to be more and more and more and more light shed on this and you, um, helped start that. So thank you for talking to us today and you're a hero. Just take it, just accept it. Well,
1: it, it was is my pleasure, Joni, and I appreciate you, um, Doing this podcast and you know shedding a light on stuff on issues like this and supporting again those addicted to and the families of of those addicted to uh, opioids and and other substances. So keep up the good
0: work. Thank you. If you have not watched the series on Hulu called Dope Sick, you might want to do that because. Um, Rick is in that series. I mean, he and his partner, Randy, they, they were the two U S attorneys who put this whole case together. And that's what dope sick is all about. You should watch it. It gives just, um, kind of like just a more visual story behind this whole thing. Um, I know Rick's interview is a little bit long, but I think it's important because I think that, um, as I said, we, all of us, if you are addicted to um, opioids, or you know somebody who's addicted to opioids, or if you even care that people are dying from opioids, then it is incumbent upon you and me and to not let this story get swept under the carpet and not let the Sacklers hide from the horrific crimes that they're responsible for, and the number of overdose deaths that they're responsible for. So thank you so much for listening. We have some even more exciting interviews coming up. And we will talk to you again next week. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, point of no return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook, or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.